The sermon text for this Resurrection Sunday is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 24. I invite you to please turn there in your copy of Scripture and also to keep the text in front of you as we read and work through uh, the verses this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 24. There we read, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. As we know, uh, Jesus was uh, crucified on a Friday morning and he died mid-afternoon on the same day. The Bible tells us that His uh, crucifixion and his death were not a result of his own guilt, but it was a result of our guilt. And that in his suffering, he suffered for us. And in his death, we read in Scripture that he died for us. In fact, when the Scriptures speak about the cross and what Christ accomplished on the cross, Scripture makes it very clear to us that Christ willingly undertook the humiliation and the suffering that was rightly ours because of our own sin. He willingly took those things upon himself. We read uh, the prophecy of what the suffering servant would accomplish in his death in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. And remember, Isaiah wrote his prophecy centuries before Jesus was even born, and yet as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his prophecy reads like an eyewitness account of what Jesus endured on uh, that Friday when he suffered on the cross. We read in Isaiah 53 verse 5 that he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. So, from verses like this in Isaiah, and from so many other verses in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, from all of these verses we see that the cross of Christ involved more than just physical suffering, but we see that it involved his intense spiritual agony and emotional torment as he on the cross, bore the wrath of God for our sin. And we read in Scripture that his suffering for us, on our behalf, was so intense that it killed him. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But loved ones, we know that the story doesn't end in death. Because as we celebrate this morning, we know that Christ rose from the dead. In fact, we very often confess 
the truth of his resurrection. When we uh, read the Nicene Creed, we read this creed frequently in our worship services. The creed states that Jesus, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and he was made man. And he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And then the confession states here, the creed states here, the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. The story doesn't end in death, but it ends in life, in his ongoing life for us in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. So we begin this morning by remembering the fact and seeing in the text that is before us the fact that Christ is risen, loved ones. Christ is risen. We see this very clearly in our text in verse 20, where Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. Here and throughout the New Testament, the scriptures very clearly testify to the fact that Christ was bodily raised from the dead that he was physically raised from the dead. That even when uh, the apostles speak about his resurrection, they emphasize the fact that Jesus was physically raised. And one great example of this is the one we read uh, this morning from Matthew's account of the resurrection. We're there in Matthew 28. We read that the women uh, arrived at the tomb that morning and they saw the angel. And the angel said to the women, verses 5 through 6 of Matthew 28, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see where his body was lying. You know, as we consider what the angel said to the the women that day, why do you think that the angel added that little detail, come and see where his body was lying. Why that little detail as the angel invites the women to see for themselves the empty tomb? Well, it's because in Matthew chapter 27, the previous chapter in verse 61, we see that it's these same women who were at the tomb when Jesus was buried. They are the ones who saw Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, that rich man, kindly uh, take the dead, lifeless body of Jesus and and wrap it in a clean linen shroud. They, They saw that same Joseph lay the body of Jesus in the tomb, and it was a tomb that had been cut for from uh, the rock. And they saw the rock that was then put in place to cover the entrance to the tomb. These women women were eyewitnesses of all of these events. And so when they returned to that same tomb after the Jewish Sabbath, they were fully expecting Jesus' body to still be there, as dead as it was when they saw it that previous day. They saw the angel, we read instead, and the angel said to them, Come and see. Come and inspect the tomb. Remember where that dead body was just a few days ago? 
He is not here anymore. He is risen, says the angel. And we know, loved ones, from this account and from other gospel accounts that Jesus later appeared to his disciples. He talked with them. Uh, He ate with them. They saw him alive. They saw him risen from the dead. In fact, when uh, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul describes uh, the resurrection of, of Christ, he describes how many people saw Jesus raised. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, where Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, And after that, he was seen by more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, says Paul, are still alive. Now, that is a powerful testimony. Paul says here that there were many eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ. In fact, Paul, when he wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, he wrote it about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. And here in these verses, he tells the Corinthians, he tells this church that the many eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, uh, many of them are still alive. And so the Corinthians could actually go and fact check. They could go interview and, and look into the evidence. See, loved ones, the reason why the apostles, and especially Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, the reason why they emphasize and defend the bodily resurrection of Christ is because some Christians in the first century denied that it happened. They denied the bodily resurrection of Christ. And even today, there are self-proclaimed Christians that deny the resurrection of Christ. Some teach that the resurrection was not a historical Event that Christ was not bodily raised. But, you know, they also say that it doesn't really matter because they'll say things like, Jesus lives on in our hearts. They'll say things like, you know, the example that he set during his life, the example of love and of sacrifice, his example inspires us. It moves us, uh, makes us better people. And so whether or not he was raised, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything for us because uh, Jesus lives on in our hearts. Uh, His spirit endures. But for Paul and the apostles, this kind of thinking is ridiculous. It's an either-or situation. In fact, I want us to see what Paul says about this thinking as he emphasizes to us the importance of Christ's physical resurrection. And we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, the section of Scripture just before the passage that we are looking at in the sermon this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. And here in these verses, Paul says basically that if Christians 
fail to believe in the resurrection, and that faith is in vain. There is no spiritual value to us being Christians if Christ was not bodily raised. Let's begin in verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul here says, you know, what happens if it's revealed that Christ has not been raised? Well, Paul says, well, then my work as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel, as a missionary of Christ... My work is in vain. It's empty. Uh, And he says this because then the whole Christian faith is in vain. There's no power in it. There's no truth to it. Look what he says, continuing on in verse 15. We are then even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says so clearly, if Christ has not been raised, we are living a lie. We believe in a hoax. We are still in our sins. We have no real hope then of life after death, of eternal life. Paul continues in the verses 18 and 19. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. See, loved ones, our faith depends on a resurrected Savior. Depends on a resurrected Savior. We need to understand that Christ's resurrection goes hand-in-hand with his being the Son of God, with his being declared the Messiah. The two are inseparable. Christ's resurrection from the dead is directly connected to who he was, to his being the Son of God, who has accomplished our redemption, who has accomplished our salvation, to his being the one who died for our sins and who we read in Romans chapter 4, who was then raised for our justification as evidence of his completed work. And that's why we rejoice on this Resurrection Sunday, and not just on this Resurrection Sunday, but every Sunday. As we see in verse 20 of our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, the truth that Christ has been raised, that he is risen, loved ones, that the tomb that day was empty and it has remained empty. And Paul says here that because Christ was raised, all those who trust in him, all those who trust in him will also be raised to newness of life. Now, Paul applies what the resurrection of Christ means to us, to you and to me, to all those who believe. The second point this morning being that in Christ shall all be made alive. We read verses 20 through 22. Of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What we see here in verse 20 is that Paul calls the resurrection of Christ the first fruits. That word is used twice in this passage. He refers to the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's a word from the Old Testament. And when we see it in the Old Testament, we read about the offerings that Israel was to bring to God in their worship of Him offerings of grain, wine, cattle, things like that. We read about these offerings, uh, particularly in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. Uh, Remember, this part of Exodus, Exodus 23, is where Israel has been uh, brought out of Egypt by God. They've been uh, miraculously delivered from slavery through the Red Sea. And now we read in Exodus 23 where God gives Israel his law. It's the law that he gives them in order to teach them how to honor him, how to worship him, how to be that peculiar nation among the pagan nations surrounding them. And among these laws, we read here in Exodus 23, verse 19, that the Lord instructs them and says, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So we see here that God taught Israel that they were to bring the best of the harvest's first reapings to God, to the priest, as an offering to God. That it was that first best portion that was to be given to God. And these first fruits, when offered to the Lord, they were representative of the whole harvest. Because, loved ones, we know that everything, belongs to God. Now, at our church every Lord's Day, we pray before that time during uh, the worship service, that time where we offer to God our tithes and offerings. We give to God our tithes and offerings as part of our worship of him. That's why it takes place during the worship service. And you and I know, and, and as it was indicated to us this morning in the prayer that the attitude when we give our tithes and offerings must never be that, well, everything that I have is mine and I'm going to give a portion of it to God. That's not the attitude that we have because the tithes and the offerings that we offer to God, we're offering out of everything that he has given to us. Everything is the Lord's. It is all his. It is not ours. You and I, loved ones, are merely stewards who have been entrusted with what is God's. And so our tithes and our offerings, when we give them to him, they represent the whole of what God has blessed us with, what God has given us. And so the idea behind first fruits is it's a portion that represents the whole thing. There's this intimate connection between the first fruits and the entire quantity. They're inseparable. See, they, they go 
together. And Paul then uses this idea of first fruits from the Old Testament to explain to us the importance of Christ's resurrection. He says that Christ's resurrection as the first fruits, it represents the whole church. It represents all of his people. It is a picture of what God is doing. It is the beginning of what will be fully and finally accomplished when Christ returns and we are all raised like him. He is the first of many to be raised in glory. Uniquely raised, but the first of many to be raised in glory. Christ is representative, loved ones, of what will happen to his whole church, to all his people, to all those who trust in him. We will be raised to newness of life. Christ's resurrection is only the beginning. It's only the start of God's greater plan of raising the whole church on that last day. And this is the idea behind what Paul develops here as he now begins to talk about the relationship between Adam and Christ, between Adam and Christ and the people that each of these men represent. Look again at verse 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul there speaks about these two representatives. He speaks first about Adam. We know that Adam was under covenant with God and he was to live in obedience to God and In his obedience, had he been obedient, he would have received blessings and life for his obedience. But Adam, in that covenant with God, was also threatened with curses for disobedience. Among those curses was the curse of death. We know that Adam sinned, and by his sin, the curse of death came upon him, came upon Eve, and came upon all of their descendants. Adam represents all of humanity. He is the representative of death. But Paul says that for those who trust in Christ, Christ is the representative of life. That by dying on the cross, what Christ accomplishes, he bore the penalty of Adam's sin, that curse for, for disobedience, that curse of death. And so in the same way that Adam, the first man, represented all of humanity and brought sin and death by his action, Christ represents all those who have faith. And he brings righteousness and life by his actions, the complete opposite of what Adam did. Adam brought death. Christ brings life. In Christ Jesus, loved ones, we have therefore been given life. We have been given life here and now. We have been given life today. It's spiritual life. The Bible speaks about this new life as regeneration, the new birth. We read about this new life in passages like Ephesians chapter 2, where we read that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. But the good news, we read in verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 2, is that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. We have life today, spiritual life, loved ones, through Christ. But the Bible says that we not only have life here and now, but we have the assurance of eternal life in heaven with him. Bodily existence, eternal existence in heaven when our bodies in the last day will be raised to newness of life. And that's what Paul emphasizes in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 through 23, when he says, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. See what Paul is driving home for us, loved ones, is that Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that all those who trust in him by faith will be raised bodily just like he was, just like Christ was so many years ago. Paul affirms this again in Romans chapter 8, verse 23 and following, where we read, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Loved ones, the scriptures are giving us hope for and pointing us toward is that there is a goal for all of world history. There is a goal that Christ's resurrection points us to. And that goal is in the last day, we will be raised in glory to inherit the new heavens and the new earth with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, each in his own order. When the end comes, he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, that victorious day, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, that final victory that we long for when his justice will be shown forth and we will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. So loved ones, what the scriptures teach us is that this is a reality that we experience at this very moment and that we will fully and finally experience in the last day. And the scriptures tell us that you and I are to live every moment of every day in light of this glory that we have through our Savior, the Lord Jesus, both glory now and the glory that awaits us, that we are to live in light of this future glory. If we believe this, if we let this truth sink down deep into our hearts, into our very being, how would this And how should this affect our joy, loved ones? Affect the the, the reality and the way that we relate to the difficulties of this life and the stresses and the strains of this life, knowing that this isn't all there is. This isn't the end. This is simply the beginning of a glorious journey that will take us on into eternity. Shapes our joy, it shapes our peace. 
We know that life is difficult. We struggle with illness, uh, pain, setbacks, stresses in life, in family, work. How does the reality of our future glory shape our peace, and how ought it? Knowing, loved ones, the reality that Christ is with us now and that he will bring us to glory, this is not all there is. See, it shapes our priorities that we, knowing what is to come, we can today, at this very moment, seek first his kingdom because we know that that is what is eternal, that is what is lasting. As we consider this theme of resurrection in the scripture and future uh, glory, we know that there are many accounts of resurrections in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Prophet Elijah, he raised a widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. And the prophet Elisha raised two people from the dead in his ministry. And then in the New Testament, we read about the fact that the Lord Jesus raised many from the dead, as did the apostles during their own ministry. These are all, you know, when we read about these resurrection accounts, they're miraculous. They reveal God's power. They point to who Christ was when he accomplished these things during his ministry. But loved ones, they pale. They, they pale in comparison to the future glory that awaits us in that final resurrection because all of the people in Scripture that were raised from the dead, they were raised only to die again. But loved ones, you and I on that day will be like Christ. We will be like Christ, and we will be raised never to die again. Like Christ, our mortal bodies will put on immortality. Our perishable bodies will put on the imperishable because we read death has been swallowed up in victory. Ever since the fall into sin, all of creation, we know, has been winding down, decaying, suffering under the burden of of the curse. But once Christ fulfilled his ministry and his life, death, and his resurrection, he has been building his kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And on that last day, that kingdom will be brought down to earth and all things will be made new, new heavens and the new earth. We will not, loved ones, simply revert back to Eden, revert back to that time that Adam was under a probation of testing. But we will inherit an even greater existence that is even greater than the sinless creation that God created at the beginning. It will be a place, loved ones, where there will be no more sin. There will be no more threat of death. There will be no more serpent to tempt. There will be a place, loved ones, in which the existence we experience that day will be more real and more joyous than anything we experience on this earth. We will be fully ourselves in Christ. And the bodies we will have will be like Christ's resurrection body. And so, loved ones, our citizenship at this moment and every day is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body 
to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the resurrection of the Son, for this triune work that we celebrate today. Lord, we rejoice with believers throughout the world and throughout the ages that death could not hold him and that death will not hold us. We know that we are citizens of heaven who have been raised with Christ and are seated there now. Lord, we ask humbly that you would help us to live daily in the light of this present reality. Forgive us, we pray, for being so earthly-minded that we often lose sight of who we are in Christ. and We lose sight of the glory that awaits us. Lord, we ask that you would remind us daily, minute by minute, that our citizenship is in heaven. And from that place, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and transform us to be like him fully and finally and forever. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.